Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From Ars Technica, a fairly harrowing tale of a poison expert who allegedly poisoned his wife. Ooh. Hmm. Specifically, we're talking about a doctor from Minnesota who had worked for a poison control center. <laughs> and yes, they were charged in October in the poisoning death of his wife, who died from a lethal dose of colchicine. Now, this is a highly toxic medication that does have an application specifically for gout. And we'll get into some of the technicalities of it. But the doctor's name, Connor Bowman, 30 years old. He was arrested and charged with second-degree murder in the death of Betty Bowman, 32, who had worked at a pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic. So we're not talking about run-of-the-mill dum-dums here, although there were very dum-dum moves made, let me be clear. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's highly suspicious that you work at a poison control center and your wife is poisoned. Like, pick a different way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there were a lot of factors here that the investigators uncovered, <laughs> but some of it was quite damaging from Connor himself. For example, he initially claimed that Betty died of a rare hyperinflammatory condition called hemophagocytic lympho. It's called HLH, if you want to look it up. <laughs> and the tests for the unusual condition were inconclusive, and Betty had been previously healthy before this rapid deterioration. But Connor Bowman told the medical examiner's office, listen, Betty should be cremated immediately. <laughs> and he should try to cancel the planned autopsy. But when it wasn't canceled, what did he do next? Well, he questioned the toxicology testing that would be done. He even went so far as to ask one death investigator over email, can you give me a list of everything you're going to test for? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, of course, the toxicology testing is part of the autopsy. It revealed an extremely high dose of this drug, colchicine, in her blood. Betty had never been diagnosed with gout. And, yeah, in retrospect, her death is a pretty textbook case of colchicine poisoning. There was even a 2010 review published in Clinical Toxology, an international team of researchers labeled colchicine as a drug with a dark side. <laughs> they even laid out the three stages of poisoning, which it's going to get a little graphic here. The first, you have a gastrointestinal phase, the first 24 hours after the poisoning, in which damage to basically your stomach lining leads to nausea, vomiting. It might even look like just severe food poisoning or, you know, cholera. <laughs> but then there's this second multi-organ phase one day to a week after poisoning. And this is when the toxic effects spread around the body. You might also experience respiratory distress. Maybe you die from liver failure, kidney failure, brain swelling, secondary sepsis. In some rare cases, patients' skin can just blister and peel off. Like this is... Wow. This is an incredibly obvious poison is what this is. Yes. Like, yeah. how is oh, anybody yes. going to oh, go yes. through three days of suffering and not be like, hmm, I think something's wrong. I should go to the doctor. That's exactly right. She was admitted to the hospital on August 16th with severe gastrointestinal distress and dehydration. She was treated as if she had food poisoning. How were they to know it was going to be this rare exotic gout drug, mm -hmm. right? 
But here's the thing. The night before, she had texted a friend that she was drinking at home with Connor. And once she started feeling ill, she thought the cause may have been something mixed into a large smoothie she had been given. But okay, it wasn't just what happened to Betty. It was also (laughs) Connor's sweet, sweet summer child, Connor. So the medical literature indicates that a lethal dose of colchicine is anything that exceeds 0.8 milligrams per kilogram. And the police investigation that looked at Connor's internet history, what did they find? Let's see. On August 10th, he was converting her weight to kilograms and multiplying it by 0.8. Wow. He was also shopping for liquid colchicine on August 10th and 11th. He also allegedly searched for things like, quote, internet browsing history. Can it be used in court? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And, you know, bless his heart, he even tried to use a VPN, but initially mistyped it as BPN, B as in brother. So, listen, an inch wide, a mile deep. He had a wheelhouse (laughs) and it was very narrow. (laughs) So, law enforcement also found a $450,000 bank deposit slip in Connor's home after the death. So, you know, if you're following the case, Connor Bowman is scheduled to appear in court on November 1st, faces up to 40 years in prison if convicted. See, okay. He was uh, smart, in quotes, enough to search for, can my internet history be used in court? The answer, clearly the internet would have told him yes. Yes. And then he went through with it anyway. I'm, listen, he'd already bought this stuff. Sure, you know? what are you going to do? Just store it? Oh, God. It takes up so much space in the garage. I mean, yeah. clearly he had connections to like feed it back into the medical system if he wanted to. Yeah, he could have been like, no, I was searching for work. She never got sick. What are you talking about? Like, yeah. All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com, and it's titled, Modern Medicine Has Its Scientific Roots in the Middle Ages, and How the Logic of Vulture Brain Remedies and Bloodletting Lives on Today. Wow. Vulture Brain Remedies. What a metal band that is. Yeah, and it's a little bit of an overstatement. This is really more kind of an exploration of the medical method back in the past and how it landed where we are today. Mm. Right. I mean, I still practice phrenology. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On vultures. Yeah. (laughs) So nothing calls to mind nonsensical treatments and bizarre religious healing rituals as easily as the notion of Dark Age medicine. The Saturday Night Live sketch, Medieval Barber Theodore yes. of York, says it all. <laughs> I was going to mention it. I'm glad yeah. they did. Yeah. <laughs> With its portrayal of a quack doctor who insists on extracting pints of his patient's blood in a dirty little shop. Though the skit relies on dubious stereotypes, it's true that many cures from the Middle Age sound utterly ridiculous. Consider a list written around 800 CE of remedies derived from a decapitated vulture. Mixing its brain with oil and inserting that into the nose was thought to cure head pain, and wrapping its heart in wolf skin served as an amulet against demonic possession. (laughs) But recent research pushes back against the depiction of the early Middle Ages as ignorant and superstitious, arguing that there is a consistency and rationality to healing practices at that time. Scholars have assumed that religious superstition overwhelmed scientific impulse and the church dictated what constituted legitimate healing, namely prayer, anointing with holy oils, and penance for sin. However, human medicine, a term affirming human agency in discovering remedies from nature, emerged in the Dark Ages. It appears Mm. again and again in a text monks at the monastery of Lorsch, Germany, wrote around the year 800 to defend ancient Greek medical learning. Hmm. It insists that Hippocratic medicine was mandated by God and that doctors act as divine agents in promoting health. 
doctors face the risk of being lumped together with those who dealt in sorcery and pagan folklore, a real possibility, given that the men who composed the Greek medical canons were pagans themselves. <laughs> right. Like that line is razor thin back then. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that line is razor thin right now. Right, right, yeah. right. <laughs> the early medieval scribes responsible for producing the medical books of their age crafted powerful arguments about the respectability and piety of the doctor. Their arguments manifest in illustrations that sanctified the human doctor by setting him parallel to Christ. And there's some images in historical event, too. <laughs> Today, religious dogmatism is often equated with vaccine hesitancy and resistance to basic scientific truths like evolution. But deeply religious thinkers of the past often saw rational medicine as an expression of faith, not something endangering it. Herbal remedies were scribbled into the margins of early medieval works on theology, history, church sacraments, and more. And this suggests that book owners valued such knowledge and people of all classes were actively exchanging recipes and cures by word of mouth before writing the most useful ones down. Texts from that period emphasize the need for the doctor to be highly learned, including well-read in philosophy, logic, arithmetic, and astronomy. Such knowledge enabled healers to situate their observations of sick bodies within the rules that govern the constant transformations of nature. Medieval people were detailed investigators of the natural world and believed that the same forces that shaped the landscape and the stars operated inside bodies formed from the same four elements of earth, water, air, and fire. Thus, as the moon's waxing and waning moved ocean tides, so did it cause humors inside the body to grow and decrease. Just as fruit and meats left untouched began to rot and putrefy, so did dregs and undigested material inside the body turn poisonous, if not expelled. Standing water in ponds or lakes generated slime and smell, and so were liquids sitting stagnant in the body's vessels seen as breeding grounds for corrupt vapors. According to this logic, bloodletting was a rational therapy because it could help rebalance the fluids and remove toxins. It was visible and tangible to the patient, and to the extent that we now better understand the placebo effect, it may well have offered some kind of relief. Mm. Fasting, purging, tonics, and above all, monthly dietary regimens were also prominent tools to prevent and relieve sickness. Several medical books, for instance, specified that consuming drinks with cinnamon in November and Petty Royal in August could recalibrate the body's temperature in winter and summer because one drink was warming while the other was cooling. And, uh, you know, we still have this deeply ingrained medical ritual today right. known as the pumpkin spice latte. That's, exactly. so, yeah. That's medicine. I need it. Yeah. <laughs> so before mocking medieval doctors, consider how popular juice cleanses and detox regimens are in the 21st century. And, you know, are we really so far? from humoral medicine today. Well, and the point is they were doing their best. Like, they were genuinely yeah. trying to be rational about it. And sometimes they were like, well, I thought I saw something, so I'm going to assume that was a correlation. But, like, better than just yeah. being like, nope, you better pray that cancer away. Cause yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always very interesting, especially in herbalism. Like, all the things like uh, animal sacrifice and vulture guts and whatever, like, those are always the picked out examples of right. the bad mm -hmm. stuff. In the same way that you might talk about drinking bleach as COVID today. Right. You know, maybe in 200 years, they'll be like, oh, back then they used to drink bleach to clear, yeah, you know, COVID like, or no. they thought that would work. But it's like, no, that's not representative. Like, right. especially in sciences that eventually became pharmacology, like herbalism, there's a lot of very fine thought. Yeah, it's like they had the framework established correctly, but the inputs were a little dodgy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I'm hearing is that maybe we've never actually done a double blind study on vulture hearts. Like we should. We should. Yeah, <laughs> test I that. mean, if we can do it ethically, why the hell not? You know, Well, we're yeah. still using horseshoe crabs to basically yeah. extract something in their blood for like a huge industry, right? Yeah. Sounds real medieval when you put it that way. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Next link. 
Next link. I'm going to circle back here to, unfortunately, Clever Killers. Mm. From <laughs> Discover. How mathematicians cracked the Zodiac Killer's cipher. Oh, Whoa. yeah. They have cracked it before in the past, but they also recently cracked a larger section of mm. it. Ah. Mm-hmm. So, spoiler alert, we still don't know who the killer was. Mm-hmm. Their identity wow. is not in the message. Uh, we have our guesses, like Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I hate saying this because it's going to sound like I'm praising a psychotic killer, but Ted Cruz is not this clever. Right, that's hard enough for this, yeah. <laughs> no. So one of the most infamous aspects of the Zodiac Killer was the series of letters he sent to local newspapers in which he claimed responsibility for his gruesome crimes and taunted authorities with cryptograms that for more than 50 years went unsolved by detectives and amateur sleuths. But after months of crunching code, cryptography experts on three different continents announced that they finally decoded the message. Further bolstering the claim, Experts at the FBI verified the solution and even tweeted about it, which I'm sure you all heard about because you follow the FBI on Twitter, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, they follow you. (laughs) A computer programmer named David Orenchak in Roanoke, Virginia, said it took a lot of computational effort and it's been a real source of frustration for a lot of people. Because he spent years fielding theories from many misguided would-be sleuths who conjured coincidences out of Mm. thin air. Mm. Although the codebreakers involved had each been working on the cipher for years, the successful joint effort began in 2018 when Orange Shack delivered a talk about the cipher at the annual meeting of the American Cryptogram Association in Asheville, North Carolina. Which I had to miss that year, but yeah. fortunately he filmed it and posted the talk on YouTube, where the comments came flooding in with all sorts of people <laughs> claiming they solved it. But there was one person who stood out, Blake. And I have to say, I commend Orange Shack for reading the comments. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so easy to just ignore all of them. <laughs> so Blake responded. What made Blake special is that he responded with mathematical ideas about how to approach a code that includes both homophonic substitutions in which one letter might be swapped for another and transposition in which the letters are reordered in a systematic way. Ornshack and Blake began corresponding and eventually generated hundreds of thousands of possible ways to read the code. To make sense of those, Ornshack brought on Jarl von Erich, a Belgian warehouse worker, and Codebreaker, who'd written AZ Decrypt software. And they struck gold. Van Eric's software spit out two phrases, trying to catch me and gas chamber. (gasps) They fixed those phrases into software, ran it again, and more words like paradise and slaves began to appear. Finally, in early December, they had the message in total. Notably, the message included, quote, that wasn't me on the TV show, referring to a call-in news show that had aired just days before the Chronicle received the cipher. And cracking the 340-character cipher was so computational heavy, Orenchak says no one in 1969 could have likely decoded the message. How smart could he be, though, if he made such an uncrackable code to be like, hey, that wasn't me on TV two days ago, only for them to actually decode that message so many years later. Exactly. I mean, I guess I feel like somebody did that on purpose. They're like, we got to draw this guy out and insult him. And that's how they get you to be (laughs) like, hey, that wasn't me. He can't take credit for my cool thing. There you go. More information, more data to to crack it. There are a couple 
couple more, but they're too short for anybody to actually be able to figure anything out. Right. And he's not using the same code for each message. Every message got its own system. Yeah, Yeah. because the first one got cracked pretty quickly, actually. And this one's just been sitting here for 50 years. Mm. And unfortunately, they don't include the decoded message in the article. You'll just have to look that up on your own. Hmm. Oh, you know what it is. We've been trying to contact you about your car. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next one comes from IEEE Spectrum, and it's called Magnetic Gel Can Help Wounds Heal Faster. And the hope here, of course, is that this new technology can eventually be applied to a variety of wounds. But what they're specifically focusing on right now are diabetic foot ulcers, which are notoriously slow to heal and can sometimes even lead to amputation. And the numbers here were pretty shocking, even to a super cynical person like me, because out of the roughly 540 million people worldwide currently living with diabetes, around 20 percent of them have foot ulcers. And around 15% of those are unable to heal. They're just like permanent wounds, which comes out to more than 16 million cases. And if you do have a non-healing ulcer, your odds of eventually needing an amputation are about one in four. So this is a huge problem that, for the most part, has no treatment. We have, you know, conventional wound dressings, but those are only meant to prevent infection and further deterioration. The healing itself is still largely a matter of just waiting for the body to do its job. And in the case of diabetes, a lot of those mechanisms are impaired. But now, researchers out of the University of Singapore have developed a topical gel that they say heals wounds three times faster than normal. The secret, according to senior author Andy Tay, is that they use a combination of strategies that all support the body's natural functions. To start with, they loaded their gel with keratinocytes, which are a type of skin cell necessary for repair, and fibroblasts, which help form connective tissue. They also added insulin so that even if the patient's overall blood sugar wasn't well controlled, at least the cells in the immediate area of the wound would be. But the real magic comes from the gel's tiny magnetic particles, which get activated by a device that basically looks like a tiny MRI machine for your foot. And what this machine does is generate a moving, pulsing magnetic field that's not strong enough to move your whole foot, but is strong enough to sort of pull and stretch your skin in a bunch of different directions. And the logic here is that movement stimulates blood flow, which promotes cell growth and migration, as well as the secretion of certain chemicals and even the development of entirely new blood vessels. And we've actually known for a long time that good circulation promotes healing, but the catch-22 for diabetes patients is that once a foot ulcer appears, They tend to move around even less than normal because their feet hurt, or if they do keep moving, they risk making the wound worse through friction. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, this is one of those rare times where I have to say they do not have a video, and I really wish they did, (laughs) because I want to see a person's foot, like, rippling back and forth under magnetic waves. Like, I imagine it's maybe a little bit like when they put a leaf blower up to their face and their cheeks go all wobbly. (laughs) I'm wondering if it moves it that much, though, because I feel like that might hurt a little bit. Yeah, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's all inside. (laughs) At any rate, as a bonus, the researchers also found that by carefully attenuating the magnetic field, they could control how quickly the insulin in the gel was absorbed into the wound. And the overall effect of three times quicker healing could be achieved with no more than an hour or two of magnetic stimulation. They also found that the body's production of collagen more than doubled, while the fibroblast growth rate more than tripled. And, you know, let's be honest, you're not likely to receive this level of treatment for just any old injury to a healthy body. But 
Tay says it does have potential application for other complex wounds, such as burns. Mm. So their next step is to see if using each diabetic patient's own skin cells in their gel instead of generic donor cells will improve the healing process even more. I mean, as long as the source is good, because right. I don't want my own janky broken cells right, trying right. to mm-hmm. compound the issue. <laughs> Add some more of my autoimmune disorder into another nope. part that was fine before <laughs> Exactly. There. We're just going to spread it. But, you know, now you'll match. It'll be in your feet <laughs> and the true. rest of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. From Science News, they've got a really interesting piece on how giant mirrors are made for what will be the world's largest telescope. Have you guys heard about the giant Magellan telescope? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, yeah. It's a big boy. So we're going to travel to Tucson, specifically a hangar-sized room beneath the football stadium at the University of Arizona. It's a space that's part of the Richard F. Karras Mirror Lab. They've got this carousel-sized furnace. It's shaped like a flying saucer, fire truck red. It's basically the swirling cocoon of a colossal light collector, i.e. one of the mirrors. Astronomer Buell Januzzi of the University of Arizona notes at the time of this writing, it's making 4.9 revolutions per minute. About a week after gradual warming, the temperature inside the rotating machine hit its peak at 1,165 degrees Celsius. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So in the heart of that inferno, we're talking nearly 17.5 thousand kilograms of borosilicate glass, which is about four semi-truck loads of it. Oof. And they've been slowly, slowly melting it into this crystal clear fluid. And if it goes to plan, the molten material will anneal to form the body of a huge mirror, one that's as tall as a two-story house if stood on edge. And the mirror is the last of seven needed to capture light for what will be the world's most powerful optical instrument, the giant Magellan Telescope. And it's planned to be on a mountaintop in Chile's Atacama Desert beneath some of the clearest night skies on Earth. And there, where they have yet to build it, but they're going to have a 22-story enclosure where the seven primary mirrors will be united in a flower-like formation. Hmm. So six petals with one in the middle. It's going to reflect light into the telescope's secondary mirrors and ultimately the scientific instruments. And the shiny expanse will provide the new telescope with an image resolution at least four times that of today's most advanced space telescopes. Hmm. However, unlike the James Webb Space Telescope, which is best suited for measuring infrared light emitted by hot celestial bodies, the giant Magellan Telescope will excel at capturing optical and near-infrared wavelengths of light emitted by cooler, Earth-like worlds. Now, the telescope's name does originate with Ferdinand Magellan, leader of the first expedition to circumnavigate the globe. There have been calls for renaming the galaxies known as the Magellanic Clouds because, you know, the explorer had some pretty brutal actions towards indigenous people. But according to a spokesperson from the consortium constructing the telescope, they haven't made any decisions about name changes. But in the meantime, the marathon that is casting of the mirrors continues. They've been working on this for 18 years already. Wow. Yeah, they have to be perfect. Perfect. And Mm. even just the construction of it, because you start with this glass-loaded furnace, right? It takes about a week to bring the enclosed material to peak temperature, which lets it melt and flow into a mold. So after three more months of cooling and annealing, where it's kind of like taking shape, the glass mirror will look like basically two pancakes sandwiching a honeycomb. 
And the structure is about 80% hollow. So it's light enough to float on oil, but stiff enough to resist bending in the wind. Hmm. And after that, once they've actually created it, two years of polishing. Two years! Because yeah. you need a surface so smooth that if it were expanded to the size of North America, the tallest imperfection would be half as tall as a golf tee. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's at the University of Arizona because that's where the research money is. But it seems so weird that they've got this thing underneath a football stadium. Like, yeah, that just right? doesn't seem like a very calm environment. Yeah, or maybe a giant furnace under a football stadium with 30,000 people may not be the right, best idea right. either. Also a safety <laughs> issue, could be, yeah. It does have a kind of, like, dungeon sort of vibe to it, or, like, mm. secret underground laboratory. But I think University of Arizona is known for, like, a heavy party culture. My guess is a lot of people don't even know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or they would have <laughs> snuck in and stole it already, so... <laughs> etched their names in the glass <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. or if like those youtube videos if this was a bad day at work somebody picking up that mirror and right. what? No, no. <laughs> it's been one day since we had an accident <laughs> all right next link next link this article comes to us from fizz.org and it's titled rats have an imagination new research finds oh yeah Always good to have science confirm things that you would prefer to believe. Right, right, right. The basic <laughs> cuteness of animals. I'm yeah. down with science experiments that prove that. Yeah. <laughs> so as humans, we live in our thoughts from pondering what to make for dinner to daydreaming about our last beach vacation. But now researchers at HHMI's Janelia Research Campus have found that animals also possess an imagination. A team from the Lee and Harris Labs developed a novel system combining virtual reality and a brain-machine interface to probe a rat's inner thoughts. <laughs> like humans, when rodents experience places and events, specific neural activity patterns are activated in the hippocampus, an area of the brain responsible for spatial memory. The new study finds rats can voluntarily generate these same activity patterns and do so to recall remote locations distant from their current position. Chung Shi Lai, a postdoc in the Harris and Lee Labs and first author of a paper describing the new findings, says, The rat can indeed activate the representation of places in the environment without going there. This ability to imagine locations away from one's current position is fundamental to remembering past events and imagining possible future scenarios. The project began nine years ago when Lai arrived at Janelia as a graduate student with an idea to test whether an animal could think. His advisor, Janelia's senior fellow Tim Harris, suggested Lai walk down the hall to chat with Lee, whose lab had similar questions. Together, the labs worked to develop a real-time thought detector that could measure neural activity and translate what it meant. The system uses a brain-machine interface, or BMI, which provides a direct connection between brain activity and an external device. In the team system, the BMI produces a connection between the electrical activity in the rat's hippocampus and its position in a 360-degree virtual reality arena. The BMI allows researchers to test whether a rat can activate hippocampal activity to just think about a location in the arena without physically going there, essentially detecting if the animal is able to imagine going to the location. Once they developed their system, the researchers had to create the thought dictionary that would allow them to decode the rat's brain signals. This dictionary compiles what activity patterns look like when the rat experiences something, in this case, places in the VR arena. As the rat walks on a spherical treadmill, its movements are translated on the 360-degree screen. The rat is rewarded when it navigates to its goal. That's wild. Yeah, and there's videos of all of this, by the Aww. way. Like, it's literally, you have this big machine. Do they give machine. them little headsets or little VR goggles? Yeah. <laughs> Probably in the brain. 
Yeah, it looks quite a bit more imposing in this version. It's like this massive machine on top of the mouse, who is very small. Basically, it looks like a giant trackpad surrounded by a wall that has projectors projecting onto it. So it's like completely enclosed in that space. You know, humans pay a great deal of money for that experience. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the mouse should be paying for this experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, I guess. It is. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so at the same time, the BMI system records the rat's hippocampal activity. The researchers can see which neurons are activated when the rat navigates the arena to reach its goals. And these signals provide the basis for a real-time hippocampal BMI with the brain's hippocampal activity translated into actions on the screen. Next, the researchers disconnected the treadmill and reward the rat for reproducing the hippocampal activity pattern associated with a goal location. In this jumper task, named after a 2008 movie of the same name, (laughs) the BMI translates the animal's brain activity into motion on the virtual reality screen. Essentially, the animal uses its thoughts to navigate to the reward by first thinking about where they need to go to get the reward. The team found that rats can precisely and flexibly control their hippocampal activity in the same way humans likely do. The animals are also able to sustain this hippocampal activity, holding their thoughts on a given location for many seconds, a time frame similar to the one at which humans relive past events or imagine new scenarios. Harris says, The stunning thing is how rats learn to think about that place and no other place for a very long period of time, based on our perhaps naive notion of the attention span of a rat. Mm. And that's basically where the article ends off. And they're really focusing on the imagination aspect, which is cool. But there's a ton of other stuff happening in the background simultaneously with this brain-machine interface and how they've basically trained a visual to react to brain waves and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of implications for this science. Yeah, they made a rat brain dictionary that says when we see these neurons, it means it's thinking about this. And that's incredibly cool. That's a step away from I can look at the rat's brain waves and know what it wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then exactly. the voice box we put on the dog where he goes squirrel. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> goes, hey, 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 all the time. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, this article from The Conversation asks, what is fried rice syndrome? Racist. Uh, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, microbiologist explains this type of food poisoning and how to avoid it. Yeah, so you already hit it. There's an elephant in the room in the story, but we'll, we'll get there. Sorry, I, it's because I'm Asian American. I am oh, predisposed yeah, 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 yeah. to having, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, a condition dubbed fried rice syndrome has caused some panic online in recent days after the case of a 20-year-old who died in 2008 yeah. resurfaced on... TikTok. Of course. Oh, TikTok. Uh-huh. It's a Chinese platform. How could they let this happen? Uh, the syndrome <laughs> refers to food poisoning from a bacterium called Bacillus cereus, which becomes a risk when cooked food is left at room temperature for too long. The alleged 20-year-old college student died after reportedly eating spaghetti that he cooked. So, well, yeah, then it makes absolute sense that we call it fried rice syndrome. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. However, be serious is no joke. I'm sorry. I uh-huh. <laughs> you will definitely get sick from it. And mm. although rare, death can occur. Be serious is a common bacterium found all over the environment and begins to cause problems if it gets into certain foods that are cooked and not stored properly. Starchy foods like rice and pasta are often the culprits. Mm. But it can also affect other foods like cooked vegetables and obviously meat dishes. B-series is problematic because it has a trick up its sleeve that other bacteria don't. It produces a type of cell called spore, which is very resistant to heating. 
So while high temps can kill some bacteria, it may not kill B. serious. Hmm. The spores are dormant, but given the right temperature and environment, they can flourish and begin to produce toxins that make you sick. So what are the signs? I'm sure we've all had food poisoning. So yeah, it's that. Diarrhea, which I found out I still can't spell in my mid-40s. <laughs> and vomiting. In fact, there are two types of B-serious infections, ones that causes the vomiting and one that has diarrhea. So if you get both, you won the lottery. Right, lucky you. <laughs> uh, illness tends to resolve itself in a few days, but people who are vulnerable, such as children or those with underlying conditions, may be more likely to need medical attention. And because the symptoms are similar to those of other gastrointestinal illnesses, and because people will often get sick and not seek medical attention, we have no idea what the firm numbers of how often this happens. But I'm guessing a lot. <laughs> Knowing how often I ate stuff that was left out too yeah. long in my 20s. But so do they say what's too long? Because this is an ongoing argument I have with my husband about how long it's allowed to sit out. Yes. I want it in the fridge immediately. Yeah. Minimize the time they spend in the danger zone, which is anything above the temperature of your fridge and below 140 degrees and how long you should keep it out after cooking the meal, refrigerate immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Even with There's the condensation no, that forms on the little There's no <laughs> need to wait for the food to cool, which, again, I saw a Hell's Kitchen and Gordon Ramsay would disagree, but he's not a scientist, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, and also, if you have a large, like if you can break up a large bat into smaller portions, when you put something in the fridge, it takes time for the cold to penetrate the mass of the food. Mm -hmm. So smaller portions will help this. This also minimizes the time you're taking it out of the fridge. So as general, you can follow the two-hour, four-hour rule. If something has been out of the fridge for up to two hours, it's safe to put it back. Hmm. If it's been out for longer, consume it, then throw away the leftovers. Hmm. If it's been out for longer than four hours, it starts to become a risk. I'm about to win this argument then. <laughs> <laughs> if in doubt, throw it out, they say, yeah, unless, yeah, unless yeah. you're really hungry. Right, right. Then, then it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Rise and Fall of the Woolly Rhinoceros, Why Banks Are Suddenly Closing Down Customer Accounts, and Are These Moths Blinding Children? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.